This is Cade Massey, practice professor at the Wharton School. On this week's highlight show, we have an interview with Ryan O'Hanlon. Ryan is a staff writer at ESPN and the author of a terrific book on soccer and soccer analytics, Net Gains. Net Gains is the name of that book. We talked with him this week about Valerian Balligan, this British player that the U.S. men's national team is now going to have playing for them. We also got caught up on Manchester City, some of their shenanigans, but also some of their greatness. A little soccer update from one of our favorite new guests at Wharton Moneyball, Ryan O'Hanlon. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball here on Sirius XM. Coming to you with the full crew. Audie Weiner is here. Eric Bradle is here. Shane Jensen is here. This is Cade Massey. You guys can jump in here, jump into the conversation via Twitter or email. Our Twitter account is at WMoneyball, at WMoneyball. We follow all of our guests. We tweet about the world of sports and sports analytics, and we love to hear from you guys. We get ideas from y'all. Feedback, obviously, very helpful. Give us a shout on Twitter. You could also drop us an email. It's our mailbag of sorts. Moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. Moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. Ryan O'Hanlon is here. Ryan is a staff writer at ESPN. Um, his book, which we really do recommend, is called Net, Net Gains. Net Gains Inside the Beautiful Games Analytics Revolution. Inside the Beautiful Games Analytics Revolution. And it's a pleasure. It's um, insightful about soccer generally, insightful about soccer analytics, and it's a good story. Lots of good stories in there. It's a pleasure to read. So we really can recommend that. And then Ryan, your work at ESPN, you're, you had an article recently about an exciting, exciting development in U.S. soccer. Um, long, you know, long, frustrating, long lamenting, long waiting for it to blossom U.S. soccer. And we've got in some ways more substantive meat to get into, but let's start with that because it is such a fun story and it's a high profile story. And I suspect it's something that U.S. soccer community and the casual fans, not unlike ourselves, we'll be talking about for some time. So can you, what can you tell us about this kid who just got approved, authorized, I'm not sure, it's certified to play, or he made his decision to play for the U.S.? What can you tell us about this guy, and why are we so excited about it? Yeah, so I, I think that there's a, long, uh, there's a long history of guys with eligibility to play for the U.S., but also eligibility to play for other typically better uh, soccer nations, like let's say Germany, France. Um, and historically, those guys that have played for the U.S. have been ones that weren't good enough to play for for France or for Germany. Um, U.S. kind of guaranteed playing time for them. And a lot of the time, um, they ended up disappointing, right? Because you, you hear of this guy that you know plays in the Bundesliga and has a couple of caps for Germany at the youth level, and he plays for the U.S., and you kind of understand why he, why he couldn't play for Germany. Right. Um, but Balogun, I think, is different because I think so he could have played for England or for Nigeria. Um, those are the two other countries he was available for. And I think he's good enough to play for England or for Nigeria. He just happened, those just happen to be two of the countries where there's a uh, sort of traditional center forward guy, guy that mainly scores goals and everything else is secondary. Harry Kane plays for England. He's one of the five best center forwards in the world. 
And then it just happen- so happens that Victor Osimhen, this Napoli player, plays for Nigeria, and he's also one of the five best center forwards in the world. Wow. And center okay. forward, it's not a, uh, you know, you, the, those guys are so important to their teams that there's not much room to kind of cycle in for a center forward in the way that there maybe is for a center midfielder or a winger kind of to get playing time on the margin. So because of that, the U.S. had this opportunity to get this player who, um, you know, by all the underlying statistical measures we talked about last time I was on, he's he stacks up pretty well to a lot of the best players in the world this season in, in France. Well, this is what was stunning. You, you walked through you, this. I mean, we, we enjoy you as a writer, as a soccer commentator, but also you're analytics friendly, analytics interested, analytics savvy. And so in your piece for ESPN last week, you walked through kind of early projections on this guy. So he's young. How you have 19 or something like that. Do I have that right? Is he that young? Um, uh, I believe he's 21. 21. So not, not that young, but so still quite young and you're projecting him. And so you're comparing him to stats from some of the great players in the history that he came at this stage of his career. And you end up saying, you know, this guy, this guy could be really special based on what he's doing so far. So what is, what is a number or two that leads us to that conclusion or at least that projection? Yeah. So the, the kind of basic, like attacking stats that are more predictive than just goals or assists, which tend to be pretty noisy for a couple of reasons, you know, guy can get hot for a season and convert his chances really well with assists. Um, the guy on the end of the chances could be just having a good season finishing them, and that kind of boosts your assist numbers. So there's expected goals and expected assists, which, which I think you guys have talked about on the show before, just kind of putting a rough probability on the chance, chance that the chance gets converted into a goal and you kind of award the player for creating the pass that does that or taking the shot. And over time that, that, tends to be more predictive of how players will perform. And if you just kind of add up non-penalty expected goals and expected assists for Balogun, players ahead of him are Kylian Mbappe, who everyone uh, knows from the hat trick of the World Cup final, Erling Haaland, who just broke the Premier League goal-scoring record in his first season in the Premier League, little-known guy called Lionel Messi, who I don't think many people will have heard of, and then Robert Lewandowski, Mohamed Salah, Bruno Fernandes, Antoine Griezmann, who are guys that maybe you guys aren't as familiar with, but they're all superstars in their own right. And then you have Balogun after him. That's incredible. That's incredible list. And to think the U S had, I mean, the U S is never, it's fair to say the U S has never had a talent that, that exciting, right? We've had some, we've had some players who've been at the, at the international level, but not quite that. Is that fair? Yeah, I think so. Um, Christian Pulisic was performing at a pretty high, he was doing the kind of, you know, you have this thing with young players where just young players getting minutes in soccer is very predictive of future success, regardless of how they perform at a young age. And right. Pulisic at a young age in the Premier League, uh, was performing at a high high level. So he was kind of doing both. Um, uh-huh. But he's never, I mean, he was fantastic in the World Cup, actually. The U.S. got pretty much, I think, close to like the 100th percentile outcome for his performance and health. Okay. Um, but he hasn't managed to stay healthy. So yeah, in terms of just like pure kind of sustainable seeming production, there's never been a season like this by an American player in the Premier League, other than maybe one Clint Dempsey season. Yeah, Ryan, can you give us a sense of how much analytics has infiltrated, if you'd like, the teams? Like, do they understand the concept that this player may have a higher expected goals than this one, but it's not statistically different? Do they have a sense of, you know, you could rank order players, but there's uncertainty in the ranks? 
Do they have an, a sense of like more in a business school setting, like ROI, like there's a certain expected number of goals per dollar spent? Can you tell us how much these concepts have kind of made their way in? Yeah, I would say it's way behind all of the, the major, uh, you know, the big four, NHL, MLB, NBA, and NFL. Um, I, I think in my book, people have compared it to baseball, like maybe baseball, like around the Billy Bean A's era, maybe like a little bit after kind of the sport started to catch on. And I guess what you had the you had Cleveland starting to dig into it a little bit. But I think for the most part, it's every team has analysts now that could come on your show and have a really interesting conversation about the stuff we're talking about. But the number of teams that like empower these people and actually listen to them and have this kind of uncertainty uh, awareness in all of their decisions, I would say is very, very, very small still. Um, it's, it's, um, it just really doesn't drive or play much of a role, I don't think, in decision-making for most teams other than a handful. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how different that is from some of the major North American sports football. Yeah, I guess you're right. <laughs> it's one, the distinction you drew is the key distinction. That is, is, are they listening to them or not? It's one thing to hire them and have them in the building. It's another for them to make a difference. Um, but here's a, a way around that. Why not just spend more money than you're legally allowed to, and then the analytics don't matter? You know, just stock the team <laughs> with money from some Middle Eastern country, and then just don't worry about what the numbers say. You're pretty sure you got the numbers on your side. So let's talk Man City. This is the, your your current um, focus, Ryan. They just came through the Premier League. They just won their third in a row, five of the last six Premier League titles. They're heavy favorites to win Champions League. You might remind us what the FA Cup is because apparently winning all three of these things is a big deal. And then let's talk about Man City because, as you point out, they have over 100 charges of financial misconduct. So we're seeing this kind of all-time team, but in parallel, we're seeing, well, they're probably not playing by the rules. Yeah, so they've won five of six titles, and I think it's important to point out that before that, the Premier League was essentially the paragon of uh, parity in European soccer. You had Bayern Munich winning the Bundesliga year after year. Real Madrid and Barcelona win La Liga. Essentially, they traded back and forth. Um, Italy, Juventus went on a 10-year streak of winning, and PSG uh, dominated Liga. So Manchester City did that right as kind of the Premier League kind of skyrocketed in terms of the amount of money that all the teams make. So they won five or six titles when theoretically the Premier League should be more competitive than ever before based on the resources available to all the teams. Um, but so I, in soccer, there's this thing called financial fair play, which is instituted kind of, um, you know, 10 or 15 years ago. It was had sort of a dual purpose, depending on who you ask. One thing that happens in soccer a lot, these owners would buy lower level teams and then they could spend a lot of money and they were able to transfer the debt onto the team so they could spend a lot of money transfer the debt onto the team and then leave and the team would just be screwed basically and they would plummet down the table and cease to exist so financial fair play is like a vague cap on how much you can spend based on the revenue you, you bring in there's a rough guideline if you can spend a little more than you bring in but it's not like it's not like mlb where i imagine in the league office if you try to spend more than you're allowed an alarm goes off or something like that it's you kind of do it you do your accounting and then after the fact uefa or the league comes in and kind of audits your books um, hey ryan real quick added- just for to, to, to deepen our understanding of the sport um 
What's an example of a club where this debt thing happened? What's, what's the most famous example of a club that got saddled with debt and therefore really slid down after the ownership change? Uh, I think Portsmouth would probably be a good example who was, were kind of ever present in the Premier League, um, you know, 10, 10 plus years ago. And now you basically never, never hear about them anymore. Um, oh, but it, it's almost more so in the lower leagues where I think I owners would kind of take a shot on a cheap team, try to spend their way up and then kind of just get bored. But so the okay. knock on effect of this was at the same time, this happened right as Roman Abramovich, uh, former Chelsea owner, Russian oligarch kind of bought Chelsea and spent turned Chelsea into a superpower by spending a ton of money. Uh, Utter bought PSG and the Abu Dhabi Royal family bought Manchester City. So the added knock-on effect of this was that suddenly those teams couldn't just spend unlimited money. They could spend whatever their quote-unquote revenues were. So kind of a lot of people viewed financial fair play as a thing to sort of make European soccer healthier as a whole, which it did. Um, Teams kind of don't go bust in the way they used to. But it also was like of a benefit for teams like Manchester United and Liverpool and Barcelona, these established legacy teams with huge commercial revenues right. that um, work. If you have financial fair play, all of a sudden their spending power raises. They don't have to try to find ways to spend beyond their means in the way that these, um, let's call them Petro funded clubs did. So that's kind of like the landscape of all this happening. Um, and essentially, Manchester City are being investigated by the Premier League for kind of doing three things. One, in, uh, inflating sponsorships. So they're sponsors, sponsored by Etihad Airways, which is also owned by the Abu Dhabi royal family. So you kind of get into the question of what's fair value for that sponsorship, <laughs> right? right. Um, and then two, they basically found ways to, I think allegedly found ways to pay coaches and players off the books. Their former manager, Roberto Mancini, supposedly they paid him, you know, a couple upwards of $10 million extra to coach a team in Qatar, which ended up just being, he would show up in Qatar for, or not Qatar, sorry, Abu Dhabi. Uh, don't want to confuse those two. Um, he'd show up for four days a year and they'd give him an extra um, yeah. yep. 10 million. And that's off of Manchester City's books. So it doesn't apply to the financial fair play calculation. So yep. they're, that's what essentially they're being investigated for, um, basically fi- finding ways to spend more um, than the financial fair play rules allow. So why don't we why don't we transition and, and move from the financial shenanigans that those guys though it really does color everything, um, but let's think about them as just a soccer team because they seem to be pretty extraordinary in that respect. By what measure would you say they are? How would you compare them to other great teams? And how, I mean, is this an all time great era? Is this a dynasty kind of thing? And how, how, how do you make those comparisons? Yeah, I think if we put aside everything we've said about finding ways around the rules, which probably shouldn't, but for the art purposes, let's do that. I think that it's the best five, six year stretch in the history of soccer, I would say. So Jeez. I guess. People would disagree because they haven't won the Champions League yet. That's kind of the one thing that's missing. Um, but the Champions League is the knockout rounds in the Champions League are it's maximum seven games. Um, and with soccer, seven games is not really enough to tell you anything, <laughs> I don't think. So that that's the one thing that's missing. But in terms of pure points winning, they have I think they're they're on pace to have uh It'll be four of the six highest point totals in league history. And the other two will be Liverpool, who 
won the league in the one season where Manchester City didn't win it and then had the highest point total with a second place team in their Mm -hmm. history of the league. So I think just in terms of raw points, they have the Premier League record with 100 um, and then have pretty much all of the next closest totals after that. So raw points, they're incredible. And this season, they're going to be heavy favorites to win the Champions League. So I think they win the Champions League. It's going to be really hard to argue that this isn't, you know, one of the three best, if not the best stretches in soccer history. Could you give our listeners here a sense? I could imagine two ways in which a team could be, you know, all time great. One could be, let's, let's just make up a number. Let's say there's 10 dimensions on which soccer teams are evaluated. They could be average on five and so great on five that makes them great. Or they could just be like an eight or nine on all dimensions, which also makes them outlying in some statistical sense. Can you give us a sense of Man City? Like, are they just so good at a few certain things and okay at others? Or are they just very good, but not really excellent at all of them? Yeah. So the way, the kind of macro way I describe City, you know, there tends to be a, there was manager Rafa Benitez said that he, he calls soccer tactics, he calls it the short blanket problem where you have this blanket and you can only cover so much of your body. So it's like, if you want to take the blanket and make yourself a good attacking team, your defense is going to, the higher up you push the blanket, the more uncovered your feet are going to be and the worse your defense is going to be. Um, and then you can do the opposite, right? You can sort of play very, keep your players back, play conservatively, but that's going to hamstring your attack. Manchester City have basically figured out a way to just uh, have a full body length blanket, I guess. Um, (laughs) They're, you know, you tend to see these teams that create a ton of chances and push up and play really aggressively and keep the ball in the attacking third. They tend to give up a lot of high quality chances. They suppress the number of chances, but they give up a lot, a handful of high quality chances because they don't have that many bodies back because they're trying to keep the ball in the attacking third. City, basically, they create a ton of high-quality chances, and then they only concede a small amount of low-value chances, which is kind of like something I previously thought was basically impossible to do um, in soccer. And so, you know, they've figured it out. And I think this season, so what what, what they had been doing, they started playing without uh, center forward. So they would basically play with, like, you could say it's an extra midfielder. So that meant you had 11 players who were very comfortable on the ball and could interchange in space and it allowed them to keep the ball and also like work the defense in a way because all their players were, it was much more unpredictable because all their players could kind of play in different roles. So they kind of attacked by being so good on the ball and not losing it. But since they had so many creative players, they were also able to create these openings Um and be efficient with the openings. So then this season they added Erling Holland, who's a center forward, essentially like he's the, if you want to make the argument that like America would win the world cup, if our best athletes played soccer, Erling Holland would be the one example I would, I would concede to you of proof of this. He's basically, he's a six two gigantic, strong guy who basically just gets into the penalty area faster than the defenders do and just lives on the top of the six yard box. But he doesn't touch the ball ever, basically. He just scores goals, is barely involved in build-up play at all. So that was a very different um, – it was a departure from the way that they've been playing and dominating. But now this season, that allowed Manchester City to – they can be a little less aggressive in terms of where they're positioning their players and um, you know how far they're pushing everyone up. But then they have this gigantic – dude essentially who they can just lob the ball up to when the other team pushes forward and creates all this space so it's just i don't they're i don't want to say they're a perfect team because you know there's no such thing but 
I think having him, they, they've added, you know, they used to be this like beautiful, beautifully, delicately balanced machine and they still have a lot of those players, but then they just have this like battering ram also at the top of it who hasn't made the team, you know, you could have thought that he would, he might uh, make the system vulnerable in some ways, right. By adding this guy that doesn't touch the ball, but it hasn't, hasn't happened at all. So let me ask, let me just channel Shane Jensen here for a second. Cause Shane has asked this question, but in different sports, I think for the last four or five weeks, what would be the most extreme the probability would be? So Man City plays the number two team. Like, are we talking 70-30 here? Like, how extreme can soccer probabilities get with how good a team is, whether it's the betting line or just what the experts might say? And I apologize, Shane, but I think you've asked that question of different sports. You've asked it for hockey. You've asked it for – we've even talked about it for tennis, golf. I'm just wondering, Ryan, how no, you think a, it is. So, yeah. it's, a, it's a great way to compare between sports, I think. Yes. So I think I have a good concrete example. So Manchester City is playing Inter Milan in the final of the Champions League. And the Champions League final is just one game at a neutral field. And home field advantage is pretty pretty important in soccer still. Um, Inter Milan, I think they're in fourth in Italy now, but they, they're kind of one of those classic teams. They have like the underlying numbers of, a, of the best team in Italy, but they're in fourth. So uh, let's say they're the second best team in Italy. Um, and the last time I looked at the odds, Manchester City is minus 500 to win the game, um, <laughs> which, you know, what, I don't know what that comes out to exactly. But Inter Milan, I think, at worst, well, that, not, so it's that the a, final. So uh, that's, I guess. Oh, so there can't be a draw. Okay. Yeah, there's no. Um, so I think someone described it to me that they're they're more likely to win than you are to convert a penalty kick, I believe, if you do the. That's about 85% minus 500. Yeah, and penalties are. 75%, which is um, kind of an absurd way to look at it. And this is Inter Milan, who I think at worst, you could say they're uh, the 15th best team in the world, we'll say. That's like, that's the low range of where I would put them. Okay. So, you that's know, so- you get to the bottom of the Premier League, playing in in Manchester, you know, you're getting significantly higher than that. Okay. So by the way, where is that game and when is that game? Match, I should say. Uh, the game is in Istanbul. Um, or at least theoretically will be in Istanbul. I think um, they put someone else, I forget who, maybe Lisbon on standby because of the of elections in Turkey. But yes, yeah, so it's in Istanbul, and I believe it's, uh, what is the final? It's, uh, sorry, I should know this off the top of my head. Well, this is going to be a good way for us to watch Man City. June 10th, Saturday. June, 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 10th. June 10th. Okay, so we're just a couple of weeks away. Good, good chance to watch. I mean, people have been talking about Holland for a couple of years now, and the way you describe him um, is super interesting. It, it, there, there's a whole other conversation we have about understanding him and what makes him so good, and especially uh, how how is he differently valued when he's surrounded by the kinds of people that he's surrounded at at Man City versus how he'd be valued at a kind of a, a, another team, even a very good team, but not Man City as a team. But we're going to have to save that one because of time. Um, Ryan, thank you for being with us today. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, um, opening our eyes a little bit about what's going on in soccer right now. Um, appreciate what uh, what you're doing, and we're always interested in hearing about it. Love coming on. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Ryan O'Hanlon, staff writer at ESPN, author of a fantastic book on soccer. Fantastic book, period. Happens to be on soccer. Net Games, Inside the Beautiful Games Analytics Revolution. That's Ryan, and I'm sure we'll talk to him again down the road. All right, gentlemen, that's been Sports Analytics here on Wharton Moneyball with the whole crew, Shane, Adi, Eric, and Cade. 
Appreciate y'all joining. Appreciate everything Matty Dats does, boss man, and Dion Simpkins making this thing happen. Many thanks to all of them. Many thanks to all of you. Come back and join us next time. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. Mm-hmm.